And I guess we can take questions. Ten. How does that fit in? actually researched Q10, and so I really can't give you a lot of... I haven't read a lot about it in the psychiatric journals, and I haven't really researched it, so I, I'm not going to be able to give you any good data on that. Sorry. Yeah. Other questions? Back in the back, there's some. Does grief affect the brain the same way that depression does, since they're sort of connected, and does it affect our reason and conscience, like you talked about in your book, things affecting our reason and conscience? Yeah, grief, does grief affect, grief does affect the brain, and it actually does work through the pain circuits of the brain, and does activate the amygdala and these emotional centers. However, grief whether someone gets depression or not will depend on whether the grief is being processed in a healthy way. I actually have a, a whole lecture on grief and grief resolution and loss. And if we don't deal with grief in healthy ways, then what happens? We can actually infect the wound with lies and distortions where people will, for instance, feel guilty. I think I told a story this weekend about a, a, a father who had a child die. And that uh, child died from meningitis. And that fire, father felt guilty that he had done something wrong. That guilt actually infected the wound. It actually caused more problems because it was a falsehood, a lie that got into his mind. So that grief was not being resolved properly and it resulted in depression. However, normal grieving, if we resolve it and work through it in healthy ways, does not necessarily result in depression. But there will be brain activity changes in the emotional centers that will be very hot for a time and the prefrontal cortex will become very active to work through that for a time as we're dealing and processing through it. Okay, so it really depends on whether it's dealt with healthy or not healthy. Yes. Hi, Dr. Jennings. Uh, thank you for this wonderful seminar. And uh, I watched all six segments of this. I was on the web, and I came down here to see the end of it. And uh, thank, you. thank you, Forest Lake Church, for bringing this. Did anybody bring a guest today? I challenge Adventists. Why don't we bring friends and guests to these types of seminars? Um, I do have a question. Sure. Um, you're, you, um, a lot of the things that you talked about actually stimulated some thoughts for me, uh, such as uh, when you talk about reasoning and consciousness and the whole uh, complete mind and the uh, concept of truth will set you free. Um, I wanted to talk about race. Um, we seem to not talk about that in the Adventist church at all. I want to talk about some of the issues of race, and if people think race is not an issue, um, I wasn't born in this country, but I learned about it when I got here. Um, when we talk about the new um, uh, candidates for running for president, when uh, people, I've asked people, what do you think about Obama? They say, well, America's not ready for a black president. Uh, I talk about Hillary. What about Hillary? Well, America's not ready for a woman yet. So I wanted to uh, touch on the subject of race uh, coming from this whole concept of supremacy, um, where one race feels that they're supreme over another. And I thought this was a God concept, where we have a supreme being as a God. But yet, um, there's been some things that happen in the world because one race seems to think that they're superior to other races. And uh, to be totally honest, I feel that um, everything you talked about today is on, on track. Um, you talked about forgiveness. We need to examine the character and nature. Uh, we need to look at the detrimental effects on the mind. Uh, you talked about um, when uh, someone is abused, how they fear abuse. This whole concept that America can't deal with any president other than a white male president seems to be a, a deeply um, race issue. Can you touch on that? And what in your studies, uh, you know, have you uncovered on this issue? Satan is a divider. God is a uniter. God is bringing all the human race back into one under one head, Jesus Christ. 
So when we have these racism, sexism, and all the various isms that we deal with, these are all manifestations of Satan's methods of self-centeredness taking root in people's hearts to divide and split. God is trying to reunite us one. In Christ, there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, black or white. We are all one in Christ, one people, united. The Bible says, and Christ said, that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. And what happens with many of these racism issues is people are having these problems because they've identified with an earthly government, an earthly power structure, an earthly system, rather than identifying their hearts with a godly system and practicing godly methods, uh, if you're following me here. Uh, we are, the Bible says our citizenship is to be in heaven, not here. And we struggle, and it doesn't really matter what country you're from, most of us struggle with patriotism. I served 17 years in the U.S. Army, nine years in the reserves, eight years on active duty. Uh, I uh, have understanding of what it's like to be a patriot. But I've been challenged with those feelings and those, uh, those affections that we talked about last night because I recognize my loyalty and my devotion is not to be to the kingdoms of the earth, but to the kingdom of heaven. And then when you talked about supremacy, a supreme being, we do have a supreme being. And that supreme being thought equality with God was not something to be grasped, but humbled himself to become a, a human, taking on the form of a servant and humbling himself even to the cross and got on his knees and washed the feet of the 12 who wouldn't get on their knees to wash his feet. And thus, when we model ourselves after God's kingdom, then the most supreme are the ones who are serving others the most, waiting on others the most. It's an upside-down system. The earth system is about self-exaltation, self-promotion, and self-advancement. The kingdom of God is about self-abasement and serving others to lift others up higher than self. Yes. We have family friends whose daughter suffers from severe bipolar disease. Severe what? Bipolar illness. Her highs are equivalent to everybody else's lows. It's a very profound condition. I'm wondering if therapeutic amounts or what are presumed to be therapeutic amounts of omega-3 could be of help in that kind of a situation. Uh, Omega-3s are absolutely beneficial. There's a study done on a cross-national comparison of of lifetime uh, prevalence rates of bipolar disorder and seafood consumption published in Psychiatric News January 2004, and it showed... uh, Slow down? Okay. (laughs) I was just citing the reference. I knew nobody would want to remember that. (laughs) And it showed... That um, <laughs> okay. it showed that um, Korea and Taiwan uh, and Puerto Rico have the highest seafood consumptions in the world, which where you get uh, a lot of omega-3s in seafood, and the lifetime prevalence uh, of uh, bipolar disorder in these countries are less than 1%. Germany, Hungary, and Switzerland have the lowest amounts of seafood consumption in the world, and the lifetime prevalence rates of bipolar disorder are about 7 to 8%. The United States is right in the middle in our seafood consumption, and our lifetime prevalence rates are about 3.5%. And so there's a direct correlation between omega-3 fatty acids in the diet and your risks of developing bipolar disorder. Omega-3s have been shown to have a mood-stabilizing effect. 
however, it, it's not been shown to be an effective treatment in isolation. It's, it's a nutrient that your brain and body needs, uh, and the medicines and treatments will work more effective when we have the proper nutrients, but it's not a replacement for if somebody's in a manic state or a severe depressed state. Giving them the nutrients alone will generally not result in remission of their disorder because of that whole cascade of events that I talked about. And I didn't go into the psychopharmacology. We could have had an entire hour and a half lecture on psychopharmacology and how the, the medicines work on different receptors in the brain causing different neural, uh, different uh, genes to turn on and so forth and so on. Uh, ultimately, uh, however, when people were in those six states, like I talked about last night, the, the Carlos person who was in a psychotic depression, med- medications are generally needed in order to resolve that, or some other type of biologic treatment like ECT or deep brain stimulators or magnetic treatments or some, some other treatment. So omega-3s are important. I would put people on it. Yes. Uh, I'm not able to write too fast. You said you take omega-3 and B12. Is that all on one pill? Yeah, what I take every day is I take 3,000 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, and I take a complex that has in it B2, B12, B6, and folate, or folic acid, same thing. That's what I take every day. I do take vitamin C fairly regularly, yes. So vitamin C is a great thing to add. And and I don't always take that one daily because you can get a little more easy in the foods you eat. You eat a lot of fruits and things. Yes, we have, there's, there's hands up here and hands in the back. Yes, Dr. Jennings, I want you to touch a little bit more about exercise. I have a cousin who is a Vietnam veteran who suffered quite extensively from post-traumatic stress syndrome. And he was on a number of pharmacological, you know, chemicals and things, and they helped. But it wasn't until he really started getting on an exercise regimen of walking and working out and other things that it really made an extreme difference. And he's gotten off most all of his medicines, and he's run marathons and stuff like that. Can you explain a little bit more how exercise really helps depression and, and other types of um, things like that a little bit more touch there's multiple different factors involved here exercise will help the brain produce brain derived neurotrophic factor which is important for those hippocampal regions to help help that area of the brain if you're not on a peripheral beta blocker for anybody who knows what a peripheral beta blocker is those practitioners in the room peripheral beta blockers actually prevent exercise from giving us this benefit that particular benefit um, exercise also causes the capillaries to expand you get more blood perfusion to the brain better oxygenation better nutrients to the brain that's a good thing the exercise causes the brain to produce endorphins and enkephalins, which are actually mood-elevating uh, uh, hormones or, or chemicals that the brain releases when we exercise. It's the runner's high that people talk about, that good euphoric feeling we get from exercise. The brain produces that when we exercise. But additionally, we have discovered that the processing portion of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, where we do our thinking and reasoning and process through and work through our emotions, actually is wired in and connected to the motor centers of the brain, the cerebellum and the, um, and the um, nigrostrate pathways, which is the pathways dysfunctional in Parkinson's disease. And when, and when we exercise, we're actually helping prefrontal cortex think better. I don't know if you notice, I end up moving a lot while I talk, see, because I'm activating thinking processes in my brain so I can think faster. <laughs> tie them down, tie them down, okay? Um, but no, that's actually true. And so, and so all those things in combination, because people who've got uh, stress issues have motions they're having difficulty working through and processing through. And just an aside about PTSD, people with PTSD have nightmares, intrusive thoughts, flashbacks. And the reason they have that is because they have not been able to uh, come to a life history where they actually can have peace with the experiences and, that they've gone through. Imagine if you've had a tooth pulled. What is your tongue doing? 
if you have a tooth pull. It, it can't stay out of the socket. It's constantly over there, constantly over there, constantly over there until there's a new norm. And that's the way normal thing, that's the way it feels normal again. Then it leaves it alone. What's happening in our minds when we've had traumatic experiences until we can come to peace, until we can look back on a life history and say, well, I never would have chosen that. I can live with that. Until we can do that, the mind keeps going there, keeps going there, keeps going there, keeps going there because it wants resolution. It wants healing. It wants to bring peace. And so it keeps regurgitating it up for us to deal with it in some way. And if we do, then we can bring some hopefully long-term resolution. Okay, yes? Uh, What is the success rate for a teenager in their 17 who's been practically ritually abused physically, spiritually, emotionally, sexually from the time they were a baby? Uh, You know, I'd have to talk to the individual. Really, you can't just say that in a blank screen. Uh, I would tell you that those are great disadvantages and that person would have many hurdles to get over, but it really does depend on the individual's um, abilities, uh, attitude, capabilities, intelligence, motivation, and all those things. Uh, they will have a lot of things to deal with, but different, different temperaments, different personalities, different uh, attitudes that people have will make a huge difference in whether they will actually engage the process. Some people uh, that I've had in my, in my practice have a great desire and engage constructively the process and do get well. Other people actually wear their abuse as a badge of honor on their shoulder. And everywhere they go, this is their identity is formed around their abusive history. And they can't give up the history of abuse and all the symptoms and all the problems that come with it because that's who they are. And they wouldn't be anybody if they didn't have that. And so it depends on really how the person is dealt with this and whether, there's, whether they're going to deal constructively or not. She asked if God can heal the person. If somebody is praying for somebody like this, can God heal that person? You're asking, can God change their mind or attitude against their will? That's what your question was. You didn't word it in those words, but that's exactly what that question means. And will God change anyone? Can God, can God, does God have the power to transform a heart? Will God transform hearts against wills? No. So the answer would be no. Unless she is willing and open and seeking, No. Yes. This morning you asked if someone would ask you about hell, so I'm doing that. Asking me about hell. Okay, anybody want to hear about that? Okay. Because there are texts in the Bible that talk about eternal burning fires, isn't there? And you might, if you have a pen, you might write, write down some texts. I'm going to run through some. Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the eternal fire? Who can dwell with the, who can dwell with the eternal burning? Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Well, that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Well, the next verse, 15, tells you who dwells there. And this is what it says. Look it up. He who walks righteously... And keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who is in the fires, not the wicked. Did you know that? So we've got it 180 degrees backwards. We're running from the flames. Well, how can that be? Wait a minute, you're confusing me. Start with your Bible and start at the beginning. When Moses talked to God at the bush, what did the bush do? It burned. When God came down to Sinai, what did Sinai do? And by the way, did the bush get consumed? Did Sinai get consumed? On the temple dedication, what happened in the temple? Could the priests enter, enter the day? Or God's glory was so bright they couldn't enter? Did the temple burn down? No. It says in Hebrews twelve twenty nine, our God is 
a consuming fire. You see, Satan has perpetrated a lie on all of Christianity. The place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of consuming fire and eternal burning. And that place is God's very presence. And the righteous are transformed by his life-giving glory as Moses, after 40 days in the mount with God, comes down, his face radiating this glory. Yes? He was being transformed. Did Moses have third-degree burns? No. Notice something. Notice something. It's a very strange fire. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But the children of Israel, when they saw Moses' face, what did they do? They were suffering. It was painful. They couldn't stand it. Wait a minute. Moses is not even hurt by this stuff. He's really enjoying it. But the children of Israel are, are in agony. They beg him to cover his face with a veil. What's that all about? This is a strange fire. We have, uh, because it says in Thessalonians that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Well, so we have a fire that doesn't burn bushes. It doesn't burn mountains. It doesn't burn temples. It doesn't burn faces. But it destroys wicked. I mean, this is a weird fire, isn't it? So let me ask you a couple questions. What are, what are these pews made out of? Okay. Uh, what, uh, what's this thing right here made out of? Plexiglass, okay. What is sin made out of? I mean, this is the fire that consumes sin. To sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire, right? So this is a fire that's going to consume sin. So tell me, what is it made out of? You see the problem here? We have this idea that the fire that burns sin is the fire that burns material substances. Sin isn't made out of substances. Sin is made out of ideas, attitudes, beliefs, heart motives. That's what sin is made out of. And the two root elements to sin, lies. And what is it that burns up, consumes, and totally destroys a lie? Truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of? Truth. And selfishness is the other aspect of sin. And what is it that when it comes into the heart, cleanses the heart and purges the heart from selfishness? Love. God is love. So the spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And on Pentecost, when the spirit fell, they saw tongues of fire. Okay. It's the fire of God's love, the fire of God's character. It says in Solomon that actually that God's love is a fire that can never be put out. God's love is a fire that can never be quenched. Rivers cannot drown it out. Oceans cannot quench it. The fire of God's love will burn forever. And so then we read in in Revelation chapter 14. It says in Revelation chapter 14, the third angel's message. Does anybody know the third angel's message? Okay, first angel message is fear God and give glory to him. What about the third? My Bible, you got my Bible? No? At Revelation 14, I think it's, is it 6 or is it 12? What is it? 14, 12? Read the third angels. Let's, let's get the third angels message. I want you to get the exact wording here. This is so good. Uh, yeah, 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 go ahead. said in a loud voice, this is Revelation 12 and verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Keep going, one more. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, 
Now notice this. First off, the word burning sulfur. You're going to love this. The Greek word translated burning sulfur is the Greek word theon. T-H-I-O-N. If we take the N off and put an S on, we get the word theos. Do you know what theos means? God. Godhead. Divine. And thus the person who goes to school to study about God studies theology and is a theologian. And so when we talk about theon, this is the fire of God. This is holy fire. This is the fire in Ezekiel chapter 28 when it says Lucifer used to walk among the fiery stones of God's presence. Well, how do we know? Look at the text. They will be burned with burning sulfur. Where? In the presence of the lamb and the holy angels. That's where the fire takes place, in God's very presence. And so it's the fire of truth and love which burns through the lies, the distortions, the selfishness of heart and causes tremendous, for those who are unreconciled, for those who want to, remember we talked earlier today about how you resolve guilt, one of two ways, you either accept the truth now, experience God's repentance in your heart and are transformed, or you reject the truth and you bend and twist your mind, you live in darkness, you shut it out. And then when the truth comes home to bear, what happens? What's that experience like? It's agony, it's distress, it's torment, torment of heart, torment of mind. And thus, those who have lived their lives rejecting the truth about God, living in the darkness, when Christ comes, are tormented at the brightness of his coming. Malachi tells us that at that time, Malachi, I think it's chapter 4, starting in the first three verses, that the son of righteousness is rising with healing in his Wings is how it's always, always translated, but the actual Hebrew there, it means, the word means things that extend out from. That's what it means. The things that extend out from. And the word sun is S-U-N, not S-O-N in that text. So the S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing in the things that extend out from. What is it that extends out from the sun? Rays, beams. So the sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his beams. Now I want you to imagine that you are in a cave. You've been in a cave, in that cave of darkness for weeks, and you've finally been rescued, and they pull you out of that cave after being in darkness for weeks on a bright, sunny day in Florida. What would that be like? Would you want to go back into the cave? Yes. But how about if they bring you out at four in the morning, and they let you stand there as the sun rises? How is it then? The sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his rays of truth and love. The latter rain is being poured out. Truth is being poured upon your minds in aliquots, in amounts that you can handle. And as we assimilate the truth, preparing for his coming, those who have taken the truth in, those whose minds have been transformed, when he comes in this full brightness, we love it and we're ready for him. But those who have been rejecting the truth, those who have been turning their backs on the truth, those who have been living in the caves of darkness, when the, when the Lord comes in his brightness, they will run and hide and beg for the rocks and trees to, to cover them or hide them from the one who sits on the throne. It's powerful stuff. We don't need to be afraid of God inflicting torment on people. We need to be afraid of the sin that separates us from our God. Another question. Did that, did that answer your question about hell, by the way? Yeah, good. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Jennings. I appreciate your presentation. I have a question that really falls into two categories. Um, with, the, with respect to God forgetting our sins, um, I'm wondering if, if it's impossible for God to forget. And uh, maybe it's a matter of interpretation. When God says, let's reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be 
white as snow, and if they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. Um, does God not have the capacity to erase and to forget all of our sins? And does not the, the blood of Christ, as it were, expunge the records of our sins? So there will be no evidence. Why would that and, be needed? Why would we need to erase the record? Let me tell you a little story and why the records is. We have this distortion in our mind of the purpose of the records. The assumption is the records are there to judge the sinners by. And we need the records erased so we won't have anything to hold accountable to. We won't have any punishment to meet out from that record. That record needs to be erased, pardoned, forgiven. Well, when I was in fourth year medical school, there was a helicopter crash. And in that helicopter crash, they brought all the casualties to our ER. One of the ladies had broken femurs and broken pelvis, and she was bleeding into the third spacing of her leg. So she was, she was hemorrhaging out inside, and she needed a blood transfusion. However, she was Jehovah's Witness, and she refused a blood transfusion. Now, she was pled with, pled with by the medical students, pled with by the nurses, pled with by the doctors, pled with by the residents, pled with by the administrators, pled with, pled with, pled with. But she rejected, rejected, refused, 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 until she lost consciousness. She was still alive, but unconscious. Once she was unconscious, nobody was pleading with her anymore. We stopped our intercession. Intercession stopped when she could no longer be reached, when she could no longer react. You want to know when God stops intercession? When we have persisted in sin so long, we're beyond responding to him. That's when he stops interceding. Anyway, she went ahead and died. Now, if her family comes back and says, look, you saved every one of these other people, but you didn't save our mom. Why didn't you save our mom? What comes into evidence? The medical records. To condemn or judge another person or to defend the doctor. The records are there to exonerate God. He has been, ex- he has been accused and alleged of being arbitrary and unfair. You saved these other people, but you didn't save them. And the records will come in and show that God pled and God pled and God worked and God worked and they rejected and they rejected and they rejected. And God will show that these others who had the same condition, had the same sickness, had the same misery in their life, accepted his remedy and their lives were transformed and healed. The records are there to exonerate God. Would be for the unsaved, but for the saved, a part of the entire process of forgiveness would be the eradication of those sins. Eradication from where? He's eradicating sinfulness from our hearts, our characters, our minds. He's not racing the records. Okay. Yeah. The, the, other, the other part of my question, it, it um, backs onto our brother, brother's question on the issue of culture and race. Maybe we need to talk about this a bit more because when we look at our church, we have had a history of problems in, that, in those areas. And when we, have, when we look at this, the current status, we have separate conferences, we have separate camp meetings, and it sends the wrong, it looks as if we've not learned to forgive in, in respect to culture and race. And so there's something there, there are barriers there that we need to start discussing and coming together so that the work can be finished. We believe Christ is coming soon. And I happen to believe that the antidote for these problems is really love. We need to start loving more and working working together more so that we can accomplish more and then Christ will come. Amen. No, I agree with you. I think that our our two, two conference system is messed up. 
think it should have been done away with years ago. It was great in the 19th century when there was so much bigotry and racism and uh, prejudice that it would have actually impaired the development and the, and the promotion of the truth. And it gave, uh, it gave um, uh, uh, African-American citizens opportunities for leadership, opportunity for uh, property ownership for their churches and so forth and so on in a, in a, in a time when they were very, very much uh, uh, treated badly. But uh, I don't think, I think that, that it's outused. I personally agree with you. I think it's out lived its usefulness and we need to come together we need to come together as one people united in love representing god um are we going to do more questions we're going to call to a close because there's another hand over here two more questions <laughs> two more minutes okay so one question over here two more minutes okay I agree about the sin should be remembered so that it won't ever happen again. But what is it that uh, our sins are uh, as far as the east is from the west? Yes. So they're there. It's just that they're, what, what does that mean? They're no longer between us. They're forgotten from the relationship. They're no longer a barrier between us and God. It's like when your child, like I said earlier, has told a fib and you, and you have discipline and, and reconciliation has occurred. And the next time you see that child, you don't think, here comes that little liar of mine. Okay, it's forgotten as far as the relationship. It's not between you anywhere. It's not an issue. It's been dealt with. It's been resolved. But that doesn't mean we have no memory of it. In fact, the memory, think about having a physical illness. Your child has some bad illness and you treat them and get them well. Uh, Your intervention to heal them and restore them gives them great appreciation for what you've done for them. But it's, and it's no longer a problem. It doesn't have to be thought about. We don't have to take special interventions once we're well. But, we always remember our sickness and our cure, so we have appreciation and we become witnesses. By the way, what makes us powerful witnesses for the Lord is as we witness and testify to what he has done in transforming our lives. We get to travel the universe and tell the experience of our salvation. Thank you guys very much.